Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. And this is the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. Caroline, this week we're taking our listeners on a trip into the Magic Kingdom. The Magic Kingdom? Yeah, that's right. We're going to take a stroll on the darker side of the Disney legend. Ooh. Is this just the parks or... Uh, the parks, the man. Uh, a few, we'll get into some urban legends about the movies even. Um, this is just a look. Look, obviously Walt Disney uh, was one of the foremost pioneers of the American um, entertainment industry, let alone the animation industry uh, and the theme park industry. And um, by the time he had died in 1966, he had built... Uh, an empire of family entertainment that has only grown um, since to this day, gobbling up um, basically everything else it can see in the entertainment sphere. You know, to where today, when theaters are actually open, Disney gets two Marvel pictures and a Star Wars picture out before they even start making money off of Disney brands. Sure. Well, those are Disney brands now. Yeah. They basically own everything. Uh, they do. And uh, and it all came from one man, Walt Disney, uh, who was born in 1901. Uh, he died pretty early, actually, in 1966, aged 65. And we'll have more on Walt's death in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now, warts and all portrayals of Walt Disney are um, a little hard to find, Some it would seem, because... Um, well, first of all, because Disney has immense control <laughs> over um, everything. Well, everything and plenty of money to um, get litigious when things are shown in an unfavorable light or an untrue light. Um, but the other thing is when you've got a figure of such um, such importance and especially in children's entertainment, I feel like when you were in high, uh, when you were in elementary school, or middle school, there were you'd hear rumors about Mister Rogers and how he was actually a a, a CIA sniper or um, a Satanist or a Satanist or a child molester. And of course, none of these were true. Mister Rogers was just um, a kindly old man who really loved working in children's television. We truly didn't deserve him, so we had to make up reasons why we did. Right, and it's like. I see why middle schoolers love it, because it's like just something shocking about uh, something you used to love when you were a kid, but you've decided you're too old for now, right? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have a similar fascination with Disney, and that's why in those same middle school years, you might have heard, um, or even later, I hear uh, adults say these things casually. Well, Walt Disney, you know, he was a Nazi. You oh, know? yeah. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of anti-Semitism talk about Disney and around Disney. Um Listen, I know some of the old-timey racism stuff, like Song of the South, things like that, but I don't really know the particulars of why people think he's an anti-Semite. Song of the South, it's interesting. There's uh, documents that I saw when I was uh, looking into all this where Disney did seek uh, meetings with the... And he did like start to put in the early stages of planning for meetings with the NAACP about concerns they had with Song of the South to, to make some changes before the movie came out. Uh, that meeting never happened, and the movie came out anyway. Well, uh, 50% is not 100%, Walt. Yeah, and then, you know, there's stuff like the Crows and Dumbo, who are obviously, um, with modern eyes, a, a pretty racist caricature of black Americans. 
Not great that they're crows, too. It's also not great that they're crows. I think one of them is named Jim as well. Not good. Anyway, that's the... uh, But but the racism stuff is hard to find outside of uh, the movies. The anti-Semitism, you can see through context clues where people put this picture together from. Um, But it doesn't necessarily mean the man... Well, let me explain. In 1938... Walt uh, attracted some headlines when he uh, personally welcomed Lenny Riefenstahl to his uh, studios in 1938 uh, for a three-hour walking tour of the production of Fantasia, which was going on at the time. Uh-oh. Uh, Lenny Riefenstahl was one of Hitler's pet directors. Uh, she was best known for Triumph of the Will and Olympia, two Nazi propaganda films um, that were, by all accounts, I've never seen them, by all accounts, amazing and impactful um, and pioneering work in film, but also were literally Nazi propaganda for Hitler. Yeah, we saw a couple of clips um, at school of Triumph of the Will, just like we watched Birth of a Nation, because they are these early examples of good filmmaking, right? But the content is so terrible and egregious, and of course, uh, professors and everything like that were sure to point that out. They weren't showing us in terms of good content. Uh, yeah, it's, it's well made. It's pretty impressive that she was a female director, especially in the documentary sphere. Um, and she certainly had some talent in terms of making film, but that doesn't make any of it good or excusable. And, uh, Olympia, which is a documentary of the 1938 Olympics. Mm-hmm is apparently, and again, I've never seen it, but like some really pioneering work in dolly shots and moving tracking shots and stuff because she was filming, um, you know, sports. It was really one of the kind of first sports documentaries in that way. And again, it's so groundbreaking for a woman to be doing that. Um, But unfortunately. Yeah, she wasn't doing it for the right reasons. It was all in service of the Nazis. Yeah. Now, Riefenstahl was touring America just a week after Kristallnacht had happened in Germany. Mm, that's not good. And uh, when she was asked about it by reporters on her trip, she always made sure to cheerfully defend Herr Hitler and what he was doing for the German people. Uh, this was the environment in which Disney brought in this impressive young director and gave her a tour of the impressive work that his animators were doing. Oof. So This is 38. I mean, there were plenty of other people to pick. Yeah, it's true. Now, during the same trip, she also negotiated with Louis Meyer. Um, She she met with other Hollywood luminaries. Walt wasn't the only one. Wasn't Louis Meyer a Jewish man? Yeah. Okay. I think so. So you can see there was there was a lot. This is all you know to Walt. Arguably, this is all business. I don't know, but in retrospect, it doesn't look great, and it's something people point to. What you what? They're not going to point to that. I think it's fair. The other thing that gets pointed to for anti-Semitism with Walt Disney all stems back to uh, some labor disputes that came up in 1941. The studio just made a bunch of layoffs following the financial failures of Pinocchio and Fantasia. And um, there was also apparently a pretty lopsided pay scale where like some of the top animators were making like 300 bucks a week. And then some of the cell painters were making like $12 a week. Mm-hmm. And um, so people started feeling like it was unfair. And there was a lot of grumbling about unionizing around the studio. 
In fact, some of the animators were going and joining an existing union, even though their shop was a non-union shop. Interesting. What good is that going to do them? Well, if their union struck, I guess the thought is if enough of the Disney animators are in this union, then if conditions are bad at Disney, the union will strike on, on Disney's the Disney workers' behalf, too. Okay. And you'd, you'd bring in these union types to uh, negotiate with Disney and his, and his boys. Uh, Disney wasn't having any of this. And in February 1941, he called an assembly of all 1,200 animators or so. And he said the following. Uh, this is from a PBS documentary. Now, some people think we have a class distinction in the place. They wonder why some people get better seats in the theater than others. They wonder why some men get spaces in the parking lot and others don't. I have always felt and always will feel that the men that contribute the most to the organization should, out of respect alone, enjoy some privileges. My first recommendation to the lot of you is this. Put your house in order. You can't accomplish a damn thing by sitting around and waiting to be told everything. If you're not progressing as you should, instead of grumbling and growling, do something about it. Okay, typical shitty corporate stuff. How does this come to anti-Semitism? Well, the speech didn't go well. More animators flocked to the union. Disney fired 17 of them, and over 200 of his animators went on strike. This was right in the middle of the production of Dumbo, which the studio was really needing to be a success to kind of pull it out of the doldrums. Disney was livid about this, and some of the strikers were caricatured as angry clowns in Dumbo when the clowns are running around doing the fire brigade bit and stuff. Those are some of his animators on their faces. Um, there was no real violence, unlike a lot of strikes at the time, which were broken with, um, you know, you bring in strike busters and, and, and people are getting their skulls cracked and stuff. Uh, there was no real violence here. Disney would drive through the mass of picketing workers every morning. And uh, one day he got out to physically accost Art Babbitt, who was one of his former animators and one of the ringleaders of the strike. He was actually a super high-paid uh, animator, one of those $300 a week guys. He invented or developed the character of Goofy. Oh, good for Art. Uh, yeah, but here Art was picketing outside of the studio, and I picture Disney grabbing him by his lapels and just like, Damn you, Art! But the National Labor Relations Board ultimately stepped in to ask Disney to sign a union contract, and he agreed. And the strike was over, and the shop was unionized. But then, presumably pretty still miffed about this, uh, Disney became a founding member of the Motion Picture Alliance for Preserving American Ideals. Oh. This was a bunch of conservative old fogies in the industry who were afraid that movies were going to make their kids into communists. And that communists were slipping subversive messages into films and um, also trying to organize union activity <laughs> in what studios. What five-year-old is going to be pro-union and pro-communist? All they care about is pro-goofy. Ayn Rand wrote a pamphlet for them pointing Ugh. out examples of communist messaging in, in movies. But it was stuff like, oh, in this one, the guy makes a patriotic sacrifice instead of going somewhere where he could make money so that's a bad communist message this guy shares his sandwich so he's a commie it, literally stuff like stuff like that what a weirdo um the motion picture alliance was accused at the time and forever since of anti-semitism fascist sympathies and of course just general red baiting uh and they fed pretty heavily into the red scare and blackballing in hollywood as we rolled into the 50s all of the colors Yes, blackballing, red scares. Um, this is also, though, where we get rumors. Uh, so that's, I think, where 
talk of possible anti-Semitism with Disney comes from. I think it all... That's just your typical shitty corporate conservative, you know, I don't... That doesn't seem anti-anything specific aside from fun. I agree. He also testified in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee and branded several of his former unionized animators as communist sympathizers. That's troubling. Um... But it's just because they they wanted uh, labor control. Oh, yeah. I'm not mad at the animators. I no, I know. what he did is a bad thing. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. It's, yeah, typical shitty old business guy stuff. But I, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily yell anti-Semitism directly to me. Mm-hmm. But I'm not a Jewish person, so I do not know. Yeah, I mean, anything we say about our opinions on whether this is anti-Semitic or not, I mean, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, and the only person that could actually make an opinion like that and be relevant is a person who is affected by it. Now, I haven't seen any accusations or any specific allegations from people in his life, from people who worked under him, uh, of Walt being anti-Semitic or intolerant in his um, personal or professional life, you know, with people around him. There were Jewish animators and people in you know various positions in the studio and... Um, I don't know. It's it's sort of hard to find people who worked with the guy saying really bad things about him after the fact. So at least on a on a personal level, he seems to have treated everybody pretty okay. So he might have been a, a gross kind of super corporate CEO, conservative type, but the only thing about him being a Nazi is really that he met one and invited them for a tour. I guess, yeah. And the stuff with the Un-American Activities Committee. Yeah, but that's that's not so much anti-Semitism as it is just anti-everything. like Right, but the Motion Picture Alliance specifically took a pretty hard stance on films with, with anything that appeared Eastern European and also uh, did their best to blackball, um, you know, a lot of communist, uh, uh, who they viewed as communist sympathizers, and a lot of them happened to be Jewish. So there was um, there was some concerns there. Mm-hmm. But he, hey, he wasn't the only guy in that organization. Now, the Motion Picture Alliance stuff and the stuff with the House Un-American Activities Committee also led to the persistent rumors that Walt may have been an FBI informant. Yeah, what's that all about? So in 1993, the, do- the I was gonna documentary. In 1993, the biography, Walt Disney, Hollywood's Dark Prince. He's not Rudolph Valentino. Came out. This is by Mark Elliott. And it's um, it is one of those warts and all kind of kind of stories that I talked about. Um, but there are some. There have been a lot of problems noted with some of the research uh, that Mr. Elliot did in this book. Um, but what he says in Hollywood's Dark Prince was that Disney was reporting quote un-American activities to the FBI um, and J. Edgar Hoover directly from 1940 to 1966 when he died. In exchange for this information, the FBI allowed him to film in FBI headquarters in Washington and also made him a, quote, special agent in charge contact as of 1954. Allowed him to film what? I've never found a specific reference to that, but it could be in... What's the point? It could be in That Darn Cat, <laughs> or it could be in Moon Pilot. Those are both about the FBI, so it could be... Who... I mean, make a set. Like, what? You're going to become an informant to have sets in that darn cat because god knows we need realism in that movie 
there were also two or three FBI-focused episodes of the Mickey Mouse Club in 1958. Mm-hmm. Just about the FBI and how cool FBI agents were. And the Mickey Mouse Club was going on an FBI investigation. It's very tenuous. Now, it should be noted, Disney's family really hated this book, Hollywood's Dark Prince. And other Disney researchers not connected to the family or to the company have kind of trashed it ever since. Uh, a lot of questionable facts. And um, I mean, I'll read an excerpt when we get down to this next piece, but... Um, It seems like a questionable book. There are some things that are true here. Disney was really made a special agent in charge contact in 1954. There's paperwork saying as much, and and Elliot put it in the book. I mean, it's not super surprising because of his involvement in that, I don't know, whatever it's called, committee for shitty films that are boring. Um, (laughs) The the, uh, Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American culture anyway it's not super surprising because he's already politicizing his filmmaking by being a part of that yeah it's true and special agent in charge contact sounds like a really impressive title because it starts with special agent in charge i don't know it kind of sounds like the equivalent of whatever richard nixon gave to elvis yeah the key word there is contact Sure. I'm sure they had a lot of contacts. It meant Disney was friendly to the FBI, friendly to Hoover specifically. They were kind of buds. And J. Edgar Hoover could call him up to ask him anything he needed to about the inner workings of the film industry and potential commie uh, uh, infiltration there. However, it's unlikely that he passed Hoover much of anything. Um, A lot of these files became public not too long ago in the last 20 years with uh, uh, freedom of freedom of information act requests mm-hmm. and well walt did communicate with the bureau a, a, a little bit until 1958 in that year when they did those two or three fbi focused mickey mouse club episodes the bureau had a lot of notes hmm. and walt happily accepted their notes but didn't give them final picture um uh, approval sure he has a tendency it seems to reach out but not do anything with the opinions given to him after that well he he took some of their suggestions but not all of their suggestions the fbi didn't care for that and so they ended up being pretty mad about these um at least uh, they there was a lot of complaining internally about these uh, mickey mouse club episodes which were apparently pretty pro fbi Listen, FBI, could be worse. You could be the NAACP and not even get the meeting. The FBI was also asked to contribute to the scripts for Moon Pilot and That Darn Cat. What's Moon Pilot? And I only know That Darn Cat because the Christina Ricci one was on Disney Channel constantly when I was a kid. Moon Pilot is a 1962 Technicolor Disney film about a man accidentally taking the first manned flight around the moon. It's a it's like a screwball comedy about an Air Force captain who accidentally becomes uh, an astronaut. Interesting. Yeah. Um, at one point, he's placed under the protection of a um, government bureau that's a thinly disguised FBI. They call it the National Security Bureau. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's got these like bumbling FBI handlers. Now, that darn cat also features a bumbling FBI agent. And a cat. And a cat. But it was the bumbling FBI agent the bureau had a problem with. So... Um, believe it or not, Disney seems to have kind of burned his bridges 
1958 with the FBI. And from that point on, um, the files that reference Disney mostly seem to be complaining about those two movies. God forbid anything compromise the integrity of that darn cat. Well, it's it's just that it was the idea of a special agent being shown as like a clown in the movie. I haven't seen the original, only the Christina Ricci uh, <laughs> remake. Which was Doug E. Doug, right? He yes. was the guy. He sure was. Mm. Now, Caroline, we get to maybe the ookiest, spookiest thing that's rumored about Walt Disney himself. Can you guess what I'm going to talk about? His head? That's right. Walt's frozen head. Mm-hmm. Now, as I previously mentioned, Disney died of complications from lung cancer on December 15th, 1966. This is just over, just over a month after he had surgery to remove his left lung. And the family had a private funeral. The public wasn't invited. Oh, they didn't parade him around Disneyland? <laughs> they, didn't do a, they didn't do a Vladimir Lenin thing where they put him in a glass box or anything like that. Um, That's and, fair. And so it wasn't too long before rumors started to abound that Walt had had his body, sometimes the rumor says just his head, uh, frozen, cryogenically frozen. And uh, it's often claimed as part of this urban legend that the cryogenic chamber, this is fun, is directly underneath the Pirates of the Caribbean ride what? in Disneyland. That I've never heard. Sure. Why? Where else would you put it? Well, if we're going to put this under conspiracy theories, this is probably one of the first that I ever heard as a kid. Like, I feel like my dad, you know, watching me watch... One of my princess movies or Peter Pan was like, hey, did you know that they cut off his head and stuck it on ice? And that's why I'm the person I am today. <laughs> and it was presented to you just as fact. Fact. Factual. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The first time Him I heard... Him and Ted Williams. The first time I heard this, it was definitely presented to me as fact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, more on Ted Williams later. In this episode? Now, the first time the Walt's <laughs> head rumor ever uh, seems to have been addressed in print, the first reference to it I could find was in a 1969 Ici Paris article. That's a French magazine. It's pretty early. Yes, it is. This is only three years after Walt's death. And in that article, apparently, it's in French, I can't read it, but apparently, <laughs> I'm told, a Disney executive attributes the rumor about Walt's head being frozen to disgruntled employees trying to have one last laugh at their old boss. Now, was was the writer of this article asking specifically about this or were they just talking about something else? And he was like, hey, you know, there's this rumor. It's not true. No, they asked him about it. So it had to be. Okay, so Easy Patty had heard it from someone else. Yes, this was. Already... It wasn't just a, a terrible slip up by this employee creating a rumor while trying to end it. It's the first reference that I can find to this story being mentioned in print. But it must have been, if this if that's true, then it must have been floating around before then. Mm -hmm. In 1972, the LA Times interviewed <laughs> Cryonics Society of California President Bob Nelson, just about cryonics, which was a pretty hot topic at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, he's an interesting guy himself. I was reading about him, too. He wasn't really like a scientist. He was just a guy who read a book about cryonics in like 1964. Maybe the same one Disney read. We'll get to that. And... um. Then he went to the, he called up the cryonic society and he didn't expect anyone to answer the phone. He's like, these will all be scientists. They're real smart and stuff. Uh, and they were just, they made him the president as soon as he showed up. 
Yeah, that tends to happen. You th- you think uh, you think you know everything, and then you're made president. <laughs> So uh, that's Bob Nelson. But when Bob Nelson was interviewed by the LA Times in 1972, and he was a big proponent of cryonics. Well, you'd have to be. Right. How how much do you know about cryonics, Carrie? Mm, What Austin Powers taught me. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So not. (laughs) So not much. Cryonics is the concept of deep freezing a human body to prevent decay so that at a later time when technology, medical technology, has improved to a point to cure or restore to life that person, or both, uh, they can be thawed out. And sometimes this is just the head that is, I don't know, chopped off, surgically removed, and the brain um, is is preserved somehow, and that head will be slapped onto some other body, I guess. Mm-hmm. When the technology allows. It's sometimes referred to as cryogenics, sometimes as cryonics, Mm -hmm. and I'm not totally clear on the distinction between those. I'm going to go with cryonics to play it safe. In the LA Times, Bob Nelson said, and this is just in an article where he's doing, remember, an interview about cryonics and kind of trying to promote it. And Nelson said, Walt Disney wanted to be frozen. Lots of people believe that he was and that the body's in cold storage in his basement. The truth is, Walt missed out. He never specified it in writing, and when he died, the family didn't go for it. They had him cremated. I personally have seen his ashes. They're in Forest Lawn. Two weeks later, we froze the first man. If Disney had been the first, it would have made for headlines around the world and been a real shot in the arm for cryonics. But that's the way it goes. Oh, Bob. So Bob thinks that's a missed opportunity. Um, Now, I read one article online that speculated maybe that's where it came from. Maybe people read in the LA Times... The bodies in cold storage in his basement skimmed the rest of the article, like our Twitter age. Dis- Disney wanted to be frozen, and um, and just that's where it came from. But again, apparently we have this reference in French to the same rumor from a couple of years before. So that's uh, strange. It had already been floating around. There have been several of the several. I mean, maybe he just told some friends that he wanted to do it, and the friends told other people, like, you know, I talked to Walt before he died, and he wanted to be frozen. I wonder if they ended up doing that. Maybe he did. Um, There's not that many references to, and again, Disney's very careful, the company, that is, about its image. (laughs) Oh? And about Walt's image. So if they felt that this was silly, maybe they just destroyed a bunch of references to cryonics that uh, he had lying around the house, you know? But uh, it's hard to find specific references of Disney talking about cryonics. Um, but his interest in cryonics uh, is, I don't know if I want to use the word chronicled in, uh, two of the more out there biographies that have come out in the past few decades. Does that include the Dark Prince? Oh, we're going back to the Dark Prince. <laughs> but first, in 1986's Disney's World, uh, <laughs> Leonard Mosley wrote that, quote, Disney's growing preoccupation with his own mortality also led him to explore the science of cryogenics the freezing of an aging or ill person until such time as the human body can be revived and restored to health. Disney often mused to Roy about the notion of perhaps having himself frozen, an idea which received indulgent nods from his brother. Sure. Now, I always love things like that, because, like, how does Leonard Mosley know what kind of indulgent nods it got from Roy? Did he talk to Roy? He saw the nod. It was indulgent. Um, So that's one reference, and, and... cryogenics doesn't seem to be a major theme of disney's world uh, it's just mentioned a few times and, and i don't think the author actually makes the strong claim 
that he actually did it. That he definitely did it. Um, 1993's Walt Disney, Hollywood's Dark Prince, by Mark Elliott, he's back, also has uh, references to Walt's fascination with cryogenics. Um, Well, that makes him a dark prince, you know. It's one of the things that make him a dark prince. This book also has a lot of of anti-Semitism accusations in it. Well, it's more fun if he's a frozen corpse, Sean. Then what if he's an anti-Semitic frozen corpse? Not as fun. Okay. In Hollywood's Dark Prince, Mark Elliott writes, The surgeons had taken away his diseased lung to examine it, and then were going to preserve it. Walt was pleased when he heard that. He knew enough about cryogenesis by now to be aware that it was important to hold on to all the organs, just in case the surgeons needed to treat them before putting them back where they belonged. You don't want that back? It's just Mark Elliott's really getting into the process and also, again, into Walt's head. Sure. I love I love when people... But again, I, I don't know how that could possibly be scientifically sound. What, just treating that lung and sticking it back in? Yeah. Treat it with what? Fire? Well, listen, this actually was a hot topic in the 60s, around when Walt died. Robert Edinger had written the book The Prospect of Immortality. It was released in 1962, and so... That kind of launched this dialogue in the mid-60s about cryogenics. Scientific think pieces in magazines and books by scientific-sounding people with doctor in front of their name uh, were popular at this time, uh, speaking on this subject. Uh, Nonetheless, Diane, Disney's daughter, wrote in her 1972 book that her father, quote, probably hadn't even heard of cryosis. How strange. But I don't know. If it was a popular topic of conversation in the 60s, I have a feeling Walt probably did at least know about it, given his fascination with future technology. Sure. The world of tomorrow. That's what inspired Tomorrowland, the um, the park, of course. And, and that's full of frozen corpses. We'll get to, we'll get to that. We will? No. Oh. <laughs> um, but there might be at least one corpse in Disneyland. We'll, we will get to that. Okay. There was also Epcot, Disney's planned experimental prototype community of tomorrow. The big golf ball. No, that's Epcot Center, the theme park. But before Disney's death, he was planning a company town of the future that he would rule by himself. uh, And it would provide perfect services to all of his employees and a beautiful place to live, recreation, everything in a planned city format radiating out like a circle with monorails everywhere. This sounds like a dystopia. It was supposed to be a utopia. Oh, I know. They usually are. And the company immediately abandoned the idea upon Walt's death in 1966. However, its monorail and utilidor systems, the underground tunnels around um, Disney World, mm-hmm. that was taken from Epcot. And of course, it inspired the Epcot Center, the place with the big golf ball where you can drink beer in Disney World. Yeah. Get wasted. Which I did. <laughs> Because it was 105 degrees, and you gave me a um, an alcoholic... Uh, what Dole was Whip. It? Dole Whip. And I took a sip, and it was all rum. Yep. And it's... I promptly got hammered, because I was so dehydrated. It's the happiest place on Earth. It was the hottest place on Earth. Now, all of this... All of this cryosis stuff is made less fun by the signed legal documents that we'll show you. That Disney was cremated, and his remains are in fact buried at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale. Including his head? 
It doesn't specify that the uh, head was cremated, but that's usually assumed. Well, I don't assume it, Sean. Now, I'm not sure how feasible cryosis is. I don't know. You know, the science, it's generally viewed as sort of fringe science even today. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you that thousands of people are currently frozen in cryonic chambers across the country, according to an NBC News report that I read. And that does, in fact, include Ted Williams. So he did do it. Didn't something happen recently where he got, like, partially thawed and he got all messed up? Let's get into it. Oh. Ted died because I don't want to I don't want to send you home empty handed if he came looking for a a cryogenically frozen head story. Sure. Ted Williams, Red Sox, great. Yes, he is a baseball player, for those who don't know. Died July. Was. One of the best best of all time. Certainly one of the best Red Sox of all time. Certainly a name that was uh, whispered in reverent tones around my home growing up. Ted died July 5th, 2002. He was 83 years old. And apparently his son, John Henry, and his youngest daughter, Claudia, immediately set about sending his body to a cryonics company called Alcor. Oh, that doesn't sound creepy at all. Alcor? Oh, you know that the Terminator is going to come from there. It sounds like, yeah, exactly. It's with Evil Corp was too, you know. Yeah. My point is, it sounds like something Mr. Robot would be fighting. Sure. It sounds like it could be a giant robot. This turned into a family struggle because Ted's oldest daughter, Bobby Jo Farrell, swore that her father's dying wishes were to be cremated. And sued her brother and sister to stop them from freezing dad. John Henry's lawyer produced a family pact, apparently, signed by himself, Ted, and Claudia, promising that the three of them would be frozen after their deaths. The lawyer or John Henry? The lawyer. Because <laughs> it, <would, laughs> it would be funny if it's the lawyer, Ted Williams, and, and his daughter. Ted's daughter. Uh, no, it was John. <laughs> okay. Uh, the oldest sister ran out of money, couldn't sue anymore, and Ted was decapitated and his body and head were frozen and stored separately at Alcor's headquarters. Headquarters, haha. <laughs> Why are they separate? That's Why a, are they separate? I think they need, I think there's different processes and different temperatures for the uh, internal organs of your body versus the brain is a very difficult freezing process. How difficult? Well, former Alcor COO Larry Johnson, after getting out of the company, wrote a tell-all called Frozen, My Journey into the World of Cryonics, Decapitation, and Death. And Disney said, that sounds like a great title. Let's cut off the the fat and just call it Frozen. And then let's cut off the head. And just call it Disney. He wrote in the book that uh, Ted Williams' treatment at the facility was a big part of the reason he left the company. That it made him sick to his stomach to see Ted... To see Red Sox great Ted Williams' In head two pieces? Cut off and stored separately. He wrote that the brain... Ted Williams' brain cracked in 10 separate places during the freezing process. Oh, no. Now, in fairness, the current director of the company, when asked about this by ABC News, said, oh, on average, we get about 10 or 12 cracks. Uh, Before then, without this technology, it was thousands. The brain isn't Play-Doh. It's just not going to mush back together. Oh, no, it's about 10 or 12 cracks. No problem. Oh, no. He seems casual about it. Um... We're really getting into rumor here because we only have Johnson's book to go on. But I have to tell you that he wrote that at one point he saw that Ted Williams' head had been propped up with an empty tuna can during transport on a cart from one 
room to another. I don't know why you would have to move it. T- was it washed, the tuna can? Uh, I have, it, it, that was not mentioned, but I do know it apparently stuck to Ted's frozen head when they picked up the head, and then an employee tried to remove the tuna can, according, allegedly. This is, oh, okay. By whacking the head with a wrench. Why not whack the tuna can? Johnson. Why with the, why? Johnson said he missed the tuna can, hit the head square in the middle, and there were bits of frozen head spraying everywhere. I'm speechless. What? Yeah. Alcor is still going strong. Uh, Is it? It doesn't sound very strong. Ted's son, John Henry, died of leukemia two years later, sadly. He was promptly transported to Alcor. His head was cut off and frozen, just, put just on like a his tuna father. Can? Hope so. Do you? No. Horrible. Oh my god. I thought this was going to be a short episode, but there's been plenty to talk about uh, with with Disney himself in this first um, this first segment. Does any of this stuff hold water to you? The tuna can. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think depends. They, I think they, the good ones they pack in oil. Let's be fair. True. Ah, uh, okay. No, not really. Not not about him. I mean, if, listen, there's a lot of racist issues with Disney. Um, when it comes to Walt, he was a rich old white guy uh, in a time where rich old white guys were shitty and racist. Yep. Still are, actually. Uh, so... You'll, you'll read about... I don't know if there's any particular anti-Semitism. There's certainly an amount of uh, hand-waving when it comes to having Lenny Riefenstahl uh, walk around, an actual Nazi in your midst. Um, so it's not good. Does that make you anti-Semitic? Maybe. But um, it doesn't seem like there's active stuff like that going on clearly anti-communist just about everyone who was rich at the time was <sighs> and even if you weren't i mean Ameri- and the cryogenic stuff you know he might have meant read a book mentioned it to someone at some point and the rumor spreads it doesn't seem like he was actually frozen i like to imagine that the rest of his body was cremated and his head was frozen i think that's funny not as funny after Listening to what happened to to Ted, that's not good. No, but you you'd like just a Disney head like in Futurama. Yeah, I mean that's fun, but that's... again, not after hearing about Ted Williams. So all of this seems pretty tenuous. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I was thinking kind of the same thing, but we've got the really fun stuff. Um. This was all. This all felt a bit real, didn't it, Carrie? Except for the frozen head stuff. Actually... Well, that that got too real. That got too grim. Yeah. I'm sorry about that. This is a bummer. I promise after the break, I'll tell you about that penis in the castle on the Little Mermaid box. Yay! And rest in peace, Ted Williams. Yeah, please, give the man some peace. Pieces. Oh, no. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. 
As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements. And I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. Hi, Tara. Hi, Nick. I've got a question for you, a hypothetical question. Here for it. If you and I were to make a podcast... Why would we make a podcast? Why does anyone make a podcast? Massive egos. Anyway. If you and I were to make a podcast... Right, so if we were to make a podcast where we ask each other hypothetical questions... (laughs) Wait, so not only is this a podcast about listening to an old married couple argue, it's explicitly about nonsense? That's right. Okay, I'm with you so far. So what would we call this hypothetical podcast? Well, I think we'd call it Unloaded Questions, a podcast about lighthearted musing and loving debate. And excellent accent work. With your co-hosts, Nick and Tara. Now, babe, why would anyone listen to a podcast like this? Well, maybe after a year locked inside their own houses, people want a break from heavy news or serial killers and... Just want to wonder how many Sasquatch eye it would take to successfully capture Nessie. I think it's Sasquatches. It's a Latin root. I'm pretty sure it's Sasquatch eye. Unloaded Questions with your hosts, Nick and Tara, dropping Wednesday at a podcatcher near you. Hey, Tara, what's a group of Sasquatch eye called? A Foot Clan. Nick, people are going to have to hear this out more than once. Foot Clan. Ugh. Welcome back. When last we left you, Carrie, I promised that we were going to move on from the dark rumors and dark myths. prince. The dark prince of Hollywood himself, Walt Disney, and move on to uh, some of his work or some of the work that's been done in his name since. And so I wanted to touch on urban legends. All right, really, we're going to talk about ghosts in Disneyland. Yay! But first, to kind of clear our palates from all of the... Uh, unpleasantness of the first half of this episode? A penis? Well, yeah. You see, another one of those things we whispered about in middle school... (laughs) Yeah. ...was the penis... Period. ...on the cover (laughs) of The Little Mermaid, on the VHS... On the VHS box cover... (laughs) Should have been a VHS. A triple X VHS. On the VHS box cover... There's a castle in the background of Mermaid and King Triton and all their friends. And um, her name's Ariel. What do they call her? Mermaid? Yes. There's a, <laughs> there's a castle in the background behind Ariel and Triton and all of their friends. Her friends. I don't know how many friends Triton has, really. He's a king. He's too far above everyone else to have real friends. You know how it is. Oh, we stand a friendless king. So No, we don't. Not good. This t- it's a castle. It's got lots of towers. And there's one right in the middle of the tower 
that just could not look more like a penis. It has... Well, it's very rounded for a tower. A very specific roundness to it. And it also has a little line that kind of signifies there's a ridge at the top. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm just telling you what I see, Caroline. <laughs> and I see a piece of the male anatomy. Uh-huh. Now, the rumors first started swirling after the video release that a disgruntled animator was to be was to blame. I mean, if you look at this, it does look... It is, it's uncanny if you're looking for it. And all of the towers... <laughs> Nothing like an uncanny penis. All of the towers are phallic. I mean, the Washington Monument is phallic, right? But this is particularly... Again, it's round. A tower usually isn't round it's, at the end. It's just too detailed and accurate. Listen. You would compare yourself to a tower. <laughs> Men. And accurate. Snopes has covered this. You may not be surprised to hear. I am not. Yeah, as it turns out, the guy who drew that artwork didn't work for Disney directly. So he wasn't a disgruntled guy who was about to be fired. He wasn't going to be fired. He was a contractor. Um, but he was rushing to finish his work. He says, quote, at about four in the morning. And that was probably the last tower he drew. And he said he just didn't notice until he heard the news a year later. I don't know. Snopes Seems fishy. Snopes rated this one false. They, they thought his word was good enough. Um, I will note that the later Laserdisc release had a new castle in the background. Oh, for sure. They just avoided the controversy altogether and had it redone. Wasn't there another penis thing in Little Mermaid? Didn't the minister that was marrying uh, Ariel and Eric have an erection? And that, I thought, was real. Oh, you're on my work computer. I see a picture of it right here. It's a real bummer to have to Google Little Mermaid erection. <laughs> it's not an erection, but it is a penis. That's what I would say. What? It's popping out? It's not like hanging out, but I mean, I, I'm saying this thing is, its angle is down. Oh, I see. He's not happy. Yeah, but there is a, um, but they, I mean, there's a, there's a little, there's a little giblet. There's a little something. I mean, he's, he's, he's wearing, he's wearing thin cotton pants, we have to assume. Oh, and there's sort of no. a, there's sort of a John Ham situation. That seems purposeful. That is a, that's well, a lump. This one you have drawn my attention to for the first time. Well, it just seemed funny that in The Little Mermaid, which, you know, is something where they have fish genitalia, there's just a lot of hidden penises. It's actually his knees, apparently, if you look at it again. Mm. Yeah. Ain't no one got penis knees. No, I see it. He's got really short, stupid legs. And so his knees are about where you would expect his crotch to be. He's also standing on a little, he has to stand on a little, walk up little stairs to marry them. He's a very small guy. Mm. That's not very kind. I hadn't seen that one before, Carrie. Thank you for scarring <laughs> me. Thank you for searching that on our computer. The other famous sort of naughty thing people say they've found in a Disney movie is, of course, uh, in The Lion King. Uh, there's a scene where uh, Timon and Pumbaa and Simba have been looking up at the sky at the stars, you know, and uh, Nathan Lane goes, they're fireflies, you know, that got stuck on that big bluish black thing. Nice. <laughs> uh, they're looking at the stars and then Simba walks over and flumps down on a cliff and some dust uh, gets kicked up off this the cliff. This isn't when he's with Nala? No. I always thought it was when he was with Nala. No, it's when he's with the boys. Oh, even weirder. And the, Well, 
No, it's Pride it's Month. It's Pride Month. Let's symbol. One of them's a pig and one of them's a meerkat. Okay, that would be complicated. It's Pride Month. It it's beautiful. So Simba flops down and dust swirls up into the sky. And if you pause the video at the right moment, it does appear that the blowing dust in the sort of forms, people say, the letters S-E-X. S-E. Oh. Mm-hmm. This was first brought to Disney's attention by some Midwestern mom who got her church involved. And then there were like national um, movements about national protests about Disney. Um, Sounds like someone wasn't getting any dust in the air, if you know what I mean. Disney corrupting the children kind of thing. Um, Snopes looked into this one, too, and they don't give it a false. They give it a, quote, legend. Mm-hmm. True, false or legend or Snopes is uh, things. Animator Tom Cito told Snopes that the SFX team snuck the letters SFX into the sky. And the F looked like an E. And the F looks like an E because it's just a bunch of particles floating through the air. I also heard that... (laughs) I had heard that... um, I think it was one of the Rescuers movies. There's a part where they're falling or something past a building with a bunch of windows... And in one of the windows, there is a pornographic image. Not just like a lady in her underwear? No, like it's like, it's like a picture. Oh, that's fun. And I think that one is confirmed. Oh, look, this one's right here on Snopes. A hidden image of a topless woman appears in the home video version of Disney's The Rescuers. It's true. In two different non-consecutive frames, a live action of the photographic image of a topless woman can be seen at the window of a building in the background. So there's two frames of this, and and I'm looking at it right now. It's just a lady with like, it's a very 70s looking woman who's just, uh, uh, you know, topless in the background of the thing. I don't know if it's from a porn necessarily. Well, no, I said a pornographic image. You're not expecting to see unclothed bosoms in a Disney film. No, you're barely expecting to see the... You're not even expecting to see the bosom buddies, let alone. (laughs) Well, no, Tom Hanks was... uh, He came later in Toy Story. (laughs) Um, So that's our fun... That's our fun movie stuff. And it's all... It's all stuff that sixth graders would whisper to each other because it was naughty because it's about sex. That has been our whole episode so far. Although I had I had really wow. good I had really good information to give you on the earlier topics. <laughs> well, the other the others are fun because those are the ones we all grew up with. I think I remember all of these, especially the penis tower and the uh, the sex dust, mm-hmm. which I think is something that Gwyneth Paltrow sells on Goop. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure her Goop don't stink. Sex powder. Sex dust. What? How, how do you brand that? I think it is. I, I swear to God, I think it is on Goop as sex dust. Oh, she really does have sex dust? Yeah, she also has a candle that smells like her vagina, apparently, which TMI. And for that reason, I'm out. <laughs> Let's talk about ghosts in Disneyland, Carrie. Uh, Isn't that please. why we're here? Yes. We've got Nazis. We've got penises. Enough. Let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to the ghosts. Okay. Now, Disneyland opened on July 17th, 1955. It was Walt Disney's life's work. 
It was uh, everything he'd ever dreamed of. Well, until he started dreaming of Epcot, which never got completed. And uh, Walt and did. being cryogenically frozen. And being cryogenically frozen, potentially. Um, so having been running since 1955, it won't surprise you to know that some tragedies have occurred in and around Disneyland. And some cast members and guests have claimed to see the spirits left behind by those who have been lost. I will say there was a, a bit of weirdness the first time I ever went to Disney, which was two years ago now, September uh -huh. 2019, um, where I, I got like a really bad, uh, basically a chafe burn <laughs> because I my shorts were wet all day from Splash Mountain. Classic mistake. And they never dried out because it was so humid. So the inside of my thigh just like ripped open. It was horrible. It was very painful. And I went to multiple shops asking someone, anyone for a Band-Aid and no one would give it to me, nor did they have any. And eventually I had to find somewhere to buy it. But it's like, what? So did you feel like it was a ghost town when you needed medical help? Well, yeah, it felt like, guys, you could literally see the blood running down my leg. You don't, you don't have a Band-Aid back there. Like, that seems like a liability, if anything. Well, didn't they kept directing you to where the medical, like... Yeah, and there was no one there. <laughs> no! It took me quite a long time to find a Band-Aid. Well, that I remember. Yes. I think you, I think... I think we were all weeping in, with joy when we found you one. I was very happy about it. I think the same store had a bag to put my comics in. It was very exciting. Yeah, they had a comic, a bag for your comics, but I had to pay for my Band-Aid. Well, for got, my bloody leg. Yeah, they know I've got to keep these things mint, Carrie. I'm trying to keep my leg mint. <clears throat> it's never recovered fully. So anyway, yeah, uh, I, I too have had medical trauma at Disneyland, uh, Disney World, and um, I, I feel that it's very possible. Well, the first of our Disney ghosts is Regina Dolly Young, who supposedly haunts the Matterhorn. Regina Young, who, who went by the name Dolly, apparently. Unless she just does now after her death. In 1984... <laughs> what if you were a ghost and you went by a different name after your death? That's pretty funny. Well, at once you're once you're a ghost, I don't think you have that much control over what people call you. I'm Carrie, but you could also call me Bruce. I'm also dead. Right, but what if they just think you're the ghost of Bruce Valanche and so everyone just calls you Bruce? I would hope they wouldn't mistake me for Bruce Valanche. I'm assuming you can't do audiovisual... So I'm just whispering to people that, no, I, I won't allow it and I won't accept it. Dolly supposedly has haunted the Matterhorn ever since 1984, when the 48-year-old 48 woman fell from her seat onto the track and was then hit by the next sled coming down the track. Oh, God. Now, Snopes says uh, her seatbelt was unbuckled. But she was riding alone in the last car, so uh, there's no way of knowing how her seatbelt became unbuckled. If she did it herself or if it was faulty? Yeah. Oh. The family sued. Uh, they got a settlement in 1984. Um, Disney said by that time, the belts on the Matterhorn had changed to like the car buckling type from the friction type belts they had had. You know, almost like a like a cloth belt when you just have the yeah, thing. Yeah, like the loop? Yes. Um, but they said the change had nothing to do with Dolly. They just don't make those old ones anymore. 
I'm pretty sure I have a belt upstairs that's like that. It doesn't attach to a Matterhorn sled. You don't know that. That's a good point. I can only use Matterhorn sleds to keep up my pants, Sean. No, but seriously, this is really sad. Um, I do not equate my bloody thigh to being crushed by a Matterhorn sled. So just throwing that out there. Uh, that's really horrible. And um, so people think that this woman haunts the Matterhorn? Well, she certainly remembered to this day. Uh, cast members today call that part of the track Dolly's Dip. Uh. And one former cast member who writes as Kristen on the website Wander Wisdom, which is a travel blog, basically. Mm -hmm. um, Kristen says that that was the worst part of the track to walk. Employees have to walk the track at the end of the night to make sure everything's fine. Like it was creepy or it was just difficult? Creepy. Um, she said it was often dark. Quote, in fact, the work lights in the tunnel near Dolly's Dip always seemed to be burned out. In six years, I never saw those lights working. That seems like another liability. There are also accounts of employees walking the tracks, hearing a woman's voice crying or speaking. Um, but those are always more of the like people say variety. I haven't <laughs> seen anyone say, I heard this. You know, If it was me, I would haunt the Haunted Mansion and it would be, <laughs> my name's Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dolly's not the only person ever to die on the Matterhorn. Um, in 1964, the first person ever to die in Disneyland was Mark Maples, who was a teenager who tried to stand up on the Matterhorn, fell from the sled, and died of his injuries three days later. Ugh. Horrible. People, please wear your seatbelts. Hopefully they're functioning. Don't stand up. Don't put your hands out when, like, we're too old for this. Come on. That's right. Be careful. Your your life is precious. Be careful with it. That's right. And from um, from Adventureland, let's let's head back to Main Street, USA. And on the way back, Carrie, we can stop in at your favorite attraction. What's that? The Haunted Mansion. Yay! My name's Bruce. Now, of course, uh, there are nine hundred ninety nine happy haunts. I believe. Yes, of course, there are nine hundred ninety nine happy haunts. Mine would be the thousandth all over the haunted mansion um but some say there's always room for one more do in fact i think they tell you that on your way out of the ride when it does the thing where oh i think they tell you several times the ghosts are hitchhiking. that you will die yeah um there's a what appears to be a total urban legend that an old woman died on the on a test run of the ride just from being scared to death <laughs> it's not that scary it's not even a little scary but then again, they always say that people died watching The Exorcist and stuff. I don't find that scary. I'm sure people find it much more scary than I do. But it's rumored that a ghost was added to the Haunted Mansion in the 1980s when a bereaved mother supposedly spread the ashes of her young son there after the ill boy had said his dying wish was to become one of the ghosts at the Aww. Haunted Mansion, which is very sweet. My heart. Very sweet. That's one variation of a of an oft-repeated and oft-changed urban legend, but it's my favorite one. Well, people tend to bring ashes into Disney World, Disneyland, to spread around of people who loved the parks. Um, it is not allowed, and you can't get permission to do it. I don't know how you smuggle in ashes because they do check your purse or whatever. I don't know if you have to tape grandma to your leg or something. I'll tell you in a second. 
but yes, I do. I do know that the haunted mansion ride is, I think, the supposedly the most popular one for people to um, drop ashes in. Yeah, and so many say that is why guests and cast members have reported seeing a young boy crying near the exit of the ride. Mm. Apparently, he wasn't so happy with his wish. Well, it's a all. scary place to be. It's a scary place to spend all of eternity. Mm, poor thing. Now, this story seems super apocryphal to me, um, but you're right, Carrie. Disney World is a really popular place to spread your loved one's ashes. The Wall Street Journal did an article in 2018 on this, and they found several people to interview. No problem. They just used their real names. They didn't care. Sure. And they said they got it in through uh, medicine bottles popular method Hmm. um basically any opaque container that you're allowed to bring in right Hmm. um your suggestion of taping grandma to your leg (laughs) ziploc that would just duct tape it probably work fine too and then once inside some of them discreetly like shake it on or some of them do it on a ride they sit in the back and and do it on a ride some discreetly shake it into a, a potted plant or into the water at it's a small world um one lady said she had two fistfuls of ashes, ran into a flower bed, and twirled and threw them in the air. Two fistfuls of ashes is, I think, one of the, uh, for a few dollars more, movies, right? <laughs> yes. Fistful of Ashes is is the last one that Clint Eastwood will make. Well, of course, for obvious reasons. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I wouldn't suggest doing it because it, it doesn't, if you're in an indoor ride, it doesn't really make sense to me. Because it's just going to be swept up by some sweaty teenager at the end of the night, and grandma's going to go in the garbage. The Wall Street Journal uh, talked to Disney custodians for that article. They said about once a month, they get a call for a HEPA cleanup. Ew. Meaning they need an ultra-fine HEPA-regulated vacuum to uh, suck up human remains, ashes. And ashes tend to be chunky. There tend to be bone fragments and things like that. They're never perfectly fine like say cigarette ashes so chunks of grandma getting swept up and this custodian also said oh the haunted mansion probably has so much human ashes in it it's not even funny it's a little funny um one former employee told the journal that she got in trouble after she and some uh, some other cast members started calling these code grandmas hey (laughs) i guess i have the same sense of humor as a disney employee don't know how to feel about that Yep, it's a co- oh, we got a code grandma. Wow. Get, get the broom. Get the HEPA. Well, also, some toddler is definitely pissing in the water, and it's a small world once a day. I don't think I would want my uh, relative to be in that same water. Um, yes, I probably agree. Although, what people say who do it is... Obviously, they say their family member really loved Disney World, and now I don't go to a cemetery to visit them. I go to Disney World, you know. I suppose so. (laughs) Just the idea of someone just sweeping up the ashes at the end of the night and tossing them in the garbage just makes me kind of bummed. I know. Um, Now, in the same vicinity, and we're still on our way to Main Street USA here, Carrie, but we're also going to pass Pirates of the Caribbean. Another fun one. Another one of our favorites. And, um... Smells real good. By the way, for the listeners, I'm not a like Disney naysayer. I I think media conglomeration is a dangerous thing. I'm not a Disneyland naysayer. I um I love. No, I I had never been there until what was I, 28, 29, and it was certainly magical. I I cried a little bit when I first saw the castle. Um, 
but we're not Disney adults. No, we're not those people. <laughs> but I would totally go, uh, you know, every couple of years or whatever. I think it's super fun. And I'm not a big roller coaster person, but there's tons of stuff that I enjoy doing. So. And I flew the Millennium Falcon and I cried. Um, yeah, I cried at the castle. You cried at the Millennium Falcon. And then I got to hug the beast afterwards. So that was awesome. It's all artificial, but it, but it's really amazing that humans can create this artificial magic. It brings you back to childhood in a really special way. And I never got to experience Disney as a child. So it was um, it was really nice. It was just, you know, you're spending a ton of money, right? Uh, so that's that kind of adult stress. But you kind of get to let go of all the other ones for at least as long as you're in the park. That's right. Now, all that magic is the work of thousands and thousands of Imagineers, but also uh, construction workers, maintenance workers. Um, and one of these men, cast members will tell you, is... And cast members is what they call employees. Yes. Especially uh, the ones that are dressed up. Yes. I assumed that anyone who cared to listen to this one had heard that. I'm just making sure, making sure people know who Ted Williams is <laughs> and what cast members are. Some say that one of the early, one of the construction workers who made Pirates of the Caribbean possible is still in residence there. Oh, Imagineering from his grave. You see, this man only goes by George these days, but they say George was a contractor. Sometimes, My name's George. Sometimes he was a riveter, sometimes he was a welder, certainly some kind of a construction worker. When he either fell off the set or was crushed by a falling piece of set and killed instantly. Is there confirmation for this? No, I looked into this. The only reference I can find to a construction worker dying in Disneyland uh, was on in August of 2019. When a guy was struck by a falling steel plate. Oof. Horrible. Um, but that's fairly recent. So this George um, must have slipped through the ca cracks. They must not have reported his death. <laughs> oh, poor George. But cast members say, and this seems to be one that like everyone who works on Pirates of the Caribbean seems to know this. Um, the contractors, it, it, it's always hard to tell what's just fun ghost stories for the newbies or like uh, what's just fun tradition. Cast members say that you must say good morning, George, when your shift begins at Pirates of the Caribbean and good night, George, at the end of the night. Or if you fail to do either, the, the ride will be plagued with malfunctions all day. It'll break down. It'll stop in the middle. It'll have to be shut down a few times. And when that stuff happens in the morning, the morning crew always blames the night crew. They must not have said not good night to George. George is a very polite uh, ghost, and he likes to be recognized for his contributions, considering he's been forgotten by the Disney Corporation. I think that's the least we can do for Georgie. Guests have occasionally reported their bras being snapped or their butts being padded, but they're in a dark tunnel. Yeah, with a bunch of sweaty dudes. Or so, women. Or women. <laughs> or gross women. So that's uh, that's George. He seems to be kind of a friendly ghost. So he's friendly, he's polite, but he'll also grab your ass. No, he demands that you be polite to him. He doesn't say goodnight he back to you. He demands politeness and then grabs your ass. Yeah. That's weird. I feel like that's a another guy. Um, his name's George. But I feel like the, the bra snapper. Oh, you think the bra snapper and George is a different guy? Seems like a different vibe. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. What if he's just like a real chauvinist jerk who's like, no, you say hello when you come into the room. I guess I feel a little less sorry for him, but I'm not going to assume. That's fair. Carrie, do you remember when I told you that there was at least one human corpse in 
the Pirates of the Caribbean, or at least I said in Disneyland, but in the Pirates of the Caribbean. Well, now I know it's that, and yes, and I want to know who. When when the Pirates attraction first opened in 1967, Imagineers were dissatisfied with the fake bones that they could get at the time. Oh, no. And they sourced, this is true, this is not an urban legend, real human remains from the UCLA Medical Center. It's exactly what happened on Poltergeist, and that's why that movie was cursed. Listen to our episode on cursed films. I think that's episode 10. Uh, yeah, the the skeletons in the pool and poltergeist were people real people and they did that here in disneyland now to be fair spielberg had a big hand in poltergeist and it feels like a spielbergian kind of move now the bones were all replaced over time kind of piecemeal as they deteriorated no as they they don't really deteriorate as as prosthetic as prosthetic bones got better as you could do fake prop bones and have them look more convincing a knuckle here or a femur there. But rumor has it, there is one very smoothed, shiny skull above the bed in the treasure room at the beginning of the ride that is the last remaining human skull in Disneyland. We'll have to keep an eye out for him. As for George, um, the Disney fan site Inside the Magic let me know that uh, malfunctions on the Pirates ride have, like, decreased sharply after they did an engineering project in 2005 yeah during which they said hello and goodbye to george every day could be that or maybe the engineering was just a little creaky and they've gotten it fixed no it was creaky it was old bones it was creaking old bones dem bones dem bones We finally made it to Main Street USA, Carrie. More ghosts? The artificial smell of cinnamon rolls is Mm. entering your nostrils. Mm. And look over there at the Main Street Firehouse. Is that Walt's light? Who's what? You see, Carrie, in the lead up to the opening of Disneyland, uh, Walt Disney himself was working like a madman. He was. He may have been a a capitalist uh, jerk at times, but he was not a man who let others do the sweat of his labor he he was a hard-working capitalist jerk he was a hard-working capitalist jerk and also a creative one and he would be up late nights on site making sure that he could oversee um i think he was also a bit of a control freak everything a bit. he wanted to to run the town he sure but did. i think he had an actual apartment on disney property like in the magic kingdom in the second floor of the main street firehouse oh And so when the light was on on the second floor in the early days of the park and the lead up to the park's opening, um, employees knew Walt was up working late or maybe hosting some famous friend for a visit. Now, there are several versions of the legend that claims that the Main Street Firehouse is haunted, but they all involve a a, a cast member going in to clean the apartment, as she did every night, uh, sometime in the 70s, after Walt's death. Why would you clean an empty apartment every night? Um, oh, tours do go through there. If you go on Disney's special backlot oh. tour, they'll take you so through. Be like, this is where Walt worked. Mm-hmm. I see. Now, either this cleaning woman turned the lamp off for the night, went downstairs, turned around, and found it still burning, and then went upstairs, turned it off, went downstairs, and found it still burning again. Mm-hmm. Or she repeated this a third time, <laughs> went back upstairs, unplugged the lamp from the wall, and found it still burning in her hand. Well, that one's the best 
one, obviously. Of course, the, in this one, the lamp clatters to the ground from her hands. <gasps> she sprints down the stairs, runs screaming from the building, and as she turns back as she runs away, the light's still burning in the window. There's a giant penis outline. It's like Walt just really couldn't stop working. Ever since that possibly apocryphal night, the lamp is left on all night, every night, as a tribute to Walt Disney. And this is official. They really do this. Yes, they really do do that. And um, this is more cast members say stuff, but cast members do say that they hear footsteps and knocking coming from inside that apartment. And occasionally, you'll see a twitch of movement in the, at the curtain just out of the corner of your eye. Mm. I also read an article on SF Gate about Disney's apartment on Main Street, and they interviewed an ex-cast member named Daryl Wagner. And Daryl Wagner... Daryl? D-A-R-R-O-L-D. Hmm. Daryl. And Daryl said that Walt's wife, Lillian Disney, and this I've seen citation of too, always made sure Walt, who was a chain smoker, basically... Uh, yeah, we know that from the lung cancer. ...would never be seen smoking in public by children. And so when Walt was working, late or otherwise, he had to go out to the staircase behind his apartment to smoke. Now, Daryl Wagner's security supervisor apparently said he used to smell cigarette smoke every time he went back into that area. He would sometimes even try to hide to catch whatever teen jerk-offs were smoking <laughs> back there. Um, but he would never find the smoker, and he never found any butts. Just the fresh smell of cigarette smoke. No butts. No butts. Unlike no butts in that pirates. It. Unlike in that pirates ride. Mm-hmm. So what do you think of that? It is interesting. Um, scent you know residual scent seems to be a big thing in paranormal activity you'll get a lot of you get a lot of uh grandpapa's pipe you'll get a lot of oh he smoked cigars and there's always cigar smoke and you'll get a lot of um perfume ladies perfume those seem to be the main scents so something like a chain smoking ghost uh yeah i totally buy that the only thing i'll say about it is that Cigarette smoke, um, if you've ever lived with or around or been a smoker, um, boy, does that smell stick into stuff. And boy, does it not come out. And wood... But if it's outside... Does, wood does soak up scents. If it's outside on the back stairwell, I don't know. Plus, that was in the 60s. I, wood smoke soaks up scents, but first of all, if the bones have been replaced, I'm sure the wood has been replaced. This is how bad cigarettes smell. Yeah, I, I don't like it. From beyond it. the grave. We're going to finish our tour up in Tomorrowland, Carrie. More ghosts? More ghosts. There was a very strange attraction in Tomorrowland that didn't quite fit the vibe there. But it was brought in uh, in preparation for America's Bicentennial uh, in 1974. The Bicentennial was 1976. I know that. But this ride was attraction was put in in 1974. And it was called America Sings. Now, this was a patriotic um, animatronic concert in a sort of theater in the round where there was a rotating stage in the middle so you could see five different acts kind of each go past your, your little booth where your audience was sitting, right? So you could get pack five audiences in at a time and the acts rotate to uh, give each audience, you know, uh, one song at a time. There's some comedy bits in there. Uh, Burl Ives voiced an eagle named Sam, unrelated to the <laughs> Sam the Eagle from the Muppets. Somehow. 
And the characters were patterned after an abandoned movie that Disney had never made called Chanticleer. So I don't know who this was supposed to be appealing to. Yeah. Um, Nonetheless, the attraction opened. And then on July 8th, 1974, just eight days later, a cast member named Deborah Gale Stone was crushed to death between two of the walls of the ride. She either fell, stepped backwards, or tried to jump in between the walls just as they started to move, and she was pinned between two of them. A guest heard her screams and uh, brought attention to another cast member, at which point they stopped the ride, Uh, but it was too late. The attraction was closed just long enough to clean up Deborah and install safety lights. But later, the walls were replaced with breakaway ones that wouldn't crush you. Good God, that's horrible. It's it's the most horrific Disney story you can find. But I would have thought, in fact, I had kind of heard of this before, and I always just assumed that this ride was, this attraction was closed because of the cast member death. Mm-hmm. Not so. Because that happened in 1974, and this stayed open for basically four more years. Oof. Again, they replaced the walls with the ones that wouldn't crush people if you got trapped in between them. Yeah, probably a good plan from the start, guys. And, I don't know, people deal with traumatic events in all kinds of ways. Making up ghost stories is one of them. Maybe that was what cast members were doing when they started reporting that sometimes they would hear voices asking them to, quote, be careful Hmm. when they got near the walls. I could totally buy a, a spirit doing that, not wanting to see someone else hurt or killed like they were. Now, America Sings, that death wasn't enough to get rid of this attraction. Somehow. Uh, so what was? Well, nobody really liked it. It wasn't <laughs> fitting well in Tomorrowland. It was not futuristic at all. No, it's old timey, if anything. And some of the Imagineers were pushing to use that space for a new theater show that would be more thematically appropriate. Plus, nobody was going to it. Um, Meanwhile, Country I'm going somewhere with this, don't worry. Meanwhile, Country Bear Jamboree was also horribly attended, and the the Imagineers had been given a mandate to push people to that part of the park with something exciting. Why? Because they had just spent all this money putting in the Country Bears, and they wanted to make it work. (laughs) Okay. At the same time, there's a lot of factors at play here. Executive Vice President Dick Nunes (laughs) apparently wouldn't stop talking. Every time he talked to an Imagineer, he was asking them for a log flume in the park. Loved a log, that dick. Apparently his son, like, really loved log flumes or something. And he he was just like, we gotta have a log flume in Disney. And the Imagineers hated this idea because they thought it was, like, too ordinary. Everybody's got a log flume. Why would we do it? Like, compounds, that's log flume. Right. Why does Disney? You know, people, they, they were saying. Because Dick Nunes says so. Dick Nunes' kid wants a log flume. Little Dicky. So, he needed to push people into bear country. <laughs> they needed a log flume. And now they were about to have a bunch of unused animatronic animal characters from this America Sings attraction that nobody wanted to go to. Imagineer Tony Baxter says he was sitting in rush hour traffic, presumably just. <laughs> screaming this sounds like an assignment that i get like you need to talk about sausages but you also need to talk about tennis Mm -hmm. and (laughs) so maybe between all of these demands and the traffic tony was driven mad uh but what came to him was the idea for a giant links oh is that is that golf yeah 
That is golf. Still pretty good. Okay, keep going. (laughs) (laughs) I liked it. (laughs) Maybe he was driven mad by the combination of all these factors and the traffic he was sitting in. Because what Tony Baxter decided was going to solve all of these problems was a log flume based on 1964's the aforementioned Song of the South. Tony, no. It's a movie that features animal characters, so you can repaint all those America Sings animals and bring them right in for the zippity doodah number at the end. Tony, no. And that is why Splash Mountain is based on Song of the South. Remember, this was 1978. <laughs> it wasn't... It wasn't a, a remembered film even then. No, it had not aged well. You know, even by 1978, the a lot of the stuff in Song of the South had not aged well. The NAACP didn't like it when it came out. Before it came out. Right. So, and not only that, it just was, it, it's not a movie that people cared about. I don't think even then. The, so, the only thing I know about it is it's racist and zippity-doo-dah. It's in the Disney vault, Carrie. You can't, it's not coming out. Just like Walt. But you can go down and ride Splash Mountain and you can get... You can at least spend time with your old friends, Brer Bear and Brer Rabbit. Yeah, I did, and it was weird. And uh, then my thigh hurt real bad because my pants were wet. Meanwhile, if Debbie was haunting the America Sings Theater, she was pretty lonely while it served as storage space from 1978 until 1996 when it was remodeled into Innoventions. That's another uh, attraction that's gone now. What is it now? Star Wars Launch Bay? Well, right now it's a social distancing center <laughs> where you can take your mask off briefly. And she says, be careful. Um, yes, when you take your mask off, Debbie Stone says, be careful. <laughs> Fully vaccinated individuals can walk around safely without masks. Mm-hmm. Debbie reads the CDC newsletter. She's very up to date. Did you uh, did you end up reading about the fun conspiracy theory about another Americana attraction in Disney? The Hall of Presidents? Mm-hmm. You're referring to the... Uh, there's no way to get to a kernel of truth on this. This is just... There's no way to get to a, a yes or no. Yeah. Snopes has no way to verify it or not. This is more of a meme, I think. But it Have has you been, seen the picture? It has been pointed out that the bust of... President Donald Trump. I think it's it's I don't think it's a bust. I think No, it's, it's a full body animatronic. Yeah. The animatronic of President Donald Trump looks a little Former. W- thank you. Former President Trump looks a little weird in the Hall of Presidents. Weirder than normal, which Weirder is than, Listen, these things don't they've gotten better, but they're not I mean, they must have put so much money into that Jack Sparrow animatronic in the Pirates ride. That it looks, one looks good. It looks like Johnny Depp is just there. Which sometimes he is. None of the Hall of Presidents ones look like that. Like that or like as as bad as the Trump one. Right. The- because it doesn't even look like him. Not that that would be much of a prize anyway, but it looks off. And why do people think it's off, Sean? The theory, the running theory, look, we'll put up a picture of this uh, on the website for next to this episode if you uh, want to weigh in. The running theory that's been bouncing around the internet since uh, the uh, Donald Trump figure debuted at the Hall of Presidents is that Disney really had all their eggs in the Hillary Clinton basket, assumed she would be the next president, and had a bust of her already for 45, and then they just had to kind of rework it into Donald Trump as best they could. 
And you might say, how in the world could you make Hillary Clinton look like Donald Trump? And the answer is badly. (laughs) Very badly. Now, I I will note, it also doesn't look like Hillary Clinton necessarily. (sighs) It's weird looking. It It really is. It is weird looking. We're running. This is way longer than I thought it would be. So I'm going to get through the last two ghosts very quickly here. Okay. We're still in Tomorrowland, Carrie. And you know I love Tomorrowland. This is where you finally found a Band-Aid. It's the world of tomorrow. In the future, they have Band-Aids. And the centerpiece of Tomorrowland is... Space Mountain. Space Mountain. The tree rode in complete darkness, which was a lot. Yeah, during, uh, what was it called? Mickey's Spooky Halloween Party? The Halloween... Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party. Spectacular, something like that. And you got to wear costumes to the park, but more importantly... They shut off all of the lights in Space Mountain and let you ride that thing in the pitch dark, which is awesome. Terrifying. It was my first time. Awesome. I didn't know where I was going or when it would end. Trust me, even with the lights on, you don't see that much. Hmm. Although you might see some spectral companions. There are two pretty famous ghosts that supposedly haunt Space Mountain. The lesser known one is called Disco Debbie. Is that another Debbie? She's a glowing, phosphorescent green humanoid figure that some people have claimed to see inside the ride. What I want to note here is that Space Mountain's full of lights everywhere. I mean, not spotlights. You can't see anything, but there's colored... So you think it might be some sort of, like, aura from another light? Yeah, I mean, something reflecting off of a... Um, Disco Debbie, just because she's bright? I think just because she's bright. (laughs) I couldn't find much information about Disco Debbie. The rumor is that she's a cast member who died of a brain aneurysm right behind the Space Mountain building. I cannot find a cast member dying in that part of the park at all. Except (laughs) except for Debbie. She's the only uh, Tomorrowland cast member death I can find. Mm -hmm. And of course, she was on America Sings. Yes. The other popular, the better known Space Mountain ghost is Mr. One Way. Oh. I don't know where he got this name. Maybe it's because he only enters the ride and he never leaves. Mr. One Way is a large man with reddish hair and a red face. That's how he's described, which is weird because red is a color for hair, that, you know, orange hair. So A reddish face. It's hot out. But this is reddish hair and a red face like he's an Oompa Loompa. (laughs) He gets on as a single rider, Mr. One-Way, in, in, in the next seat to a uh, single rider spot, you know, where, where you're, you're sitting alone. He'll get on next to you. Big guy, red face, reddish hair. He rides the ride with you, and then, you know, the flashing light tunnel at the end of, the, at the end of Space Mountain? I don't know if we had that. We did. It's at the, it's, the ride's done. You slow down, and you go through a tunnel where lights are flashing in your face. Okay. I might have had my eyes closed. (laughs) (laughs) Why? It was all dark. It was scary. By the time you get to that point, he's gone. The man beside you has disappeared. Big, reddish, red, gone. Now, the word among cast members is this is a ghost of a guy who died on the ride in the 1970s, hence his always out-of-date clothing. Well, that's a new detail. But the fact is, nobody's ever died on Space Mountain. Or have they? Well, three people have after riding it. They all had pre-existing conditions. Maybe Mr. One-Way did. The red face. Sure, but if he did, the death wasn't reported. Or it's been covered up very well. Hmm. Finally, 
As we leave the park, we might take the monorail to get back to the shuttles. And so it's worth talking about Thomas Guy Cleveland, who was another early Disneyland death on June 8th, 1966. The 19-year-old Cleveland was trying to sneak into the park by climbing up the monorail track and uh, hopping over. Uh A security officer shouted a warning at him, hey, get down from there, or something like that. Panicked and thinking the guy was going to try to, like, catch him, which he probably would have, right? Um, Thomas took off running the other way down the track and was quickly hit by a train (sighs) and dragged 30 or 40 feet down the track. God. The security guard later said he had to, quote, hose the kid off the underside. Okay, Bob. A little blasé. That's from David Koenig's Mouse Tales, a behind-the-ears look at Disneyland from 1994. Yikes. Now, sometimes, late at night, cast members driving the monorail still see a figure running along the track at the edge of the park, just for a moment, and just out of the corner of their eye. When they look, Cleveland is gone. That would be scary. It would be scary. It's also the kind of thing I think your brain would... If if you were if you were driving a Disney World train for your job, I think your brain would constantly constantly be going person. Ah! Maybe right, especially in the dark. Like, oh, I don't want to. I don't want to kill someone at Disney World. I guess. Oof. Um, and that is the last ghost story that I have for you, Carrie. Darn. I mean, all the deaths are very sad. If they were just, you know, unrelated ghosts, I would prefer that, but. I love a ghost story, Sean. Let me ask you this. If Disney was going to make a film about one of these ghosts, you know, kind of capitalize on the on the issue, um, which one do you think would make the best movie? It's a Disney film. So, you know, it's got to be family friendly. I don't know. Maybe like a Walt Disney ghost movie where, um, you know, there's a an an imagineer or an animator or something that gets to move into the little apartment and he is mentored and tormented by the ghost of Walt Disney. Ooh, the guy can be like either really inexperienced or really, really talented, but unappreciated or just the opposite. Like if we make this a screwball comedy with like, I mean, Pauly Shore is too old to play this role now, but we need the modern Pauly Shore. Do we? To be to be an imagineer who's like on the verge of getting fired. And then uh And then he teams up with Walt Disney himself to create the next big attraction. The ghost of Walt Disney. Uh and and eventually he's running the park, basically, but it's it's Walt Disney giving him all of the um it's kind of I think it's sort of the plot of how high. I wouldn't know. <laughs> That's where their friend is very smart, and after he dies, his friends smoke him so they can become smart. Because then his ghost talks to them. Well then, how high? <laughs> You've never seen... No, like, I've never seen how high. You've never seen the film How High? I wouldn't call it a film. <laughs> a flick. A picture? A movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the type of thing that they could possibly do, because the other ones involve people dying at their park, and that's not great. I guess that's true. (laughs) They wouldn't want to do anything around that. Yeah, do all of the other ones? Unless they they did a Haunted Mansion one, again, that would be about the character ghosts and not like a real ghost. Because again, you don't want the film to start with someone dying at your theme park. Well, and you also don't want to start with the film... 
having a no sprinkling the the boy's ashes in the yeah that's then then you're encouraging tragic and you're encouraging uh that kind of behavior yeah so you could do a haunted mansion ride where um you have some young cast members working in the summer late at night and they realize that it's actually haunted the place by these 999 happy haunts yeah and i would just like to see a like an origin story movie on mr one way you know what's his deal um, you know, diabetes. A lot, know. Of, a lot of trials with sunburn. Yeah. Just a sunburned ginger out there. We Irish have it hard, you know. It's true. It's true. Anyway, those are the ghosts of Disney, Carrie. And I think at this point we've covered um, the dark side of Disney. Ooh. Both the man himself, the parks. We got a little bit of movie stuff in there. Um, how do you feel? I feel dark. Okay. I think... But I really want to go to Disney now, and I don't know what that says about me. Well, probably says that you want to ride that uh, Rise of the Resistance ride. No, I want to go to the Haunted Mansion and see a real ghost, but not a little boy. That's too sad. I don't have a joke about that. It's a, it's a, boy's, a boy died, Caroline. I'm sorry. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Connecticut's first ever paranormal convention is coming this summer. Paracon! Paracon will be held Saturday and Sunday, July 24th and 25th, 2021, at the Haunted Ansonia Armory in Ansonia, Connecticut. And guess who's going to be there? This Haunted Weekend will feature special guests, paranormal investigations, seminars, panels, vendors, exhibits, and much, much more. Paracon is presented by Nick Grossman, head of Ghost Storm Investigations and collector of some of the rarest paranormal artifacts in the world, and Charles Rosenay, founder of Stratford's Fright Haven and director of Tours of Terror, ghost tours to Transylvania, Prague, England, and all over haunted Connecticut. Yeah, we've been to Fright Haven. Uh, when we went, he had a... One, one of the rooms was... Uh all clown themed it was a bunch of scary clown stuff but you wore 3d glasses it was pretty cool that was the saint valentine's day massacre wasn't it Uh, yes they do seasonal offerings not just halloween that was the saint valentine's day massacre it was a beautiful date our first valentine's day so who will be at paracon guests include paranormal investigator barry pirro Author Bill Hall, who you may remember wrote The World's Most Haunted House, subject of episodes 17 and 18 of the podcast. Yep. Go check those out. Some of our very best work, Mm -hmm. I think. And us. 
yeah, we'll be there too, in person to chat all things scary. So come on down and meet us. Oh, I guess I spoiled your surprise there. But yes, we will have a booth at Paracon and we're so damn excited that we'll be there. Yeah. Do you like to shop? Well, they'll have their own bizarre bazaar. Haunt artists, horror authors, cryptozoologists, artisans, occult sellers, and much more will be there. So bring some bones, the money kind, and a good pair of walking shoes. You can bring the other kind of bones, too, if you if you want. Yeah, maybe you can sell them. Who knows? We hope to see you there. Get your tickets now for only $9.99 per day through May 1st at www.paraconn.org. Is that a special deal for us or is that just how cheap tickets are? That's just how cheap tickets are until May 1st. Then it goes up like five bucks. Oh, you guys. Still this, still a deal. This is a bargain at any price. <laughs> Paracon, Connecticut's first paranormal convention. It's me and my boo. Call this one a follow-up to our Haunted Dolls episode. Residents in Australia report to the Daily Mail that a supposedly haunted little girl doll brings bad luck to anyone that approaches her. Oh. Residents of the North Queensland town Wait, of... Anyone who approaches her? I guess. Not even... Usually with a haunted item, it's like if you possess this doll, if you have it in your house. Well, no one owns this doll, and I'll tell you why. Residents of the North Queensland town of Lucinda seem to be terrified of this doll, which does not reside in any house, but sits on a swing near a mangrove swamp and is apparently to blame for incidents like nearby boat motor troubles and lost fishing gear. How does it sit on a swing? Creepily. <laughs> I mean, has someone sewed its hands there? Does the swing swing? Why doll no fall? <coughs> Why doll no fall? Yeah, so someone has attached this thing's hands to the ropes and presumably its butt to the swing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, everyone seems to know about the doll, but nobody really wants to talk about it. Hinchinbrook MP Nick DeMetto told the Townsville Bulletin as he proceeded to talk about it. <laughs> it seems well, no everybody one... except Nick. Yeah, seems no one knows where the doll came from or who placed her on the swing. I've heard stories of people who have gotten too close to the doll having bad luck while out boating or fishing, DeMetto said. This might be pure circumstance or just a modern old wives' tale, but it's something I'm definitely not willing to toy with. <laughs> Was he doing a pun? I don't know. This MP? <laughs> I don't know. Come on. A local business owner seemed to think the doll was made by a lovely couple that just wanted to add some color to the town. Unfortunately, the color they added seemed to be one of fear for the locals. Is that your line or hers? Which one? Unfortunately, the color they added. Oh, me. Okay. I thought that was all that woman's quote. I was like, oh, yeah. No, no, it was just color to the town. So, uh, yeah, we'll keep you updated. Um, if this doll kills anyone, but right now it's just creepily sitting on a swing in the dark in a swamp. It sounds like, um, folk art to me. It's like the, um... More like fuck that art. <laughs> I don't want to come upon that at night. It's like the Tonka truck tree. That's not creepy. That's interesting. This is a, a 
creepy weirdly doll sitting large on a swing. doll sitting on a swing, like facing away from you, which is somehow even more chilling. It, it looks like an old plushy doll, like a Definitely like a cabbage patch vibes, or yeah. a Robert. <laughs> oh yeah, Robert the doll, really normal looking guy. Yep, classic normal all American boy Robert, <laughs> the British doll. So yeah, haunted doll. Lucinda, North Queensland, North Queensland, Australia. All right. And listeners, as a reminder, we are on Haunted Doll Watch for the whole <laughs> month of June. So please, if you uh, hear of any more or more news on this one, get back to us right away. Yeah. Along with our Disclosure Watch uh, and celebrating Pride Month for all of our LGBTQIA plus friends, uh, yeah, this is Haunted Doll Month. I'm going to call it that. And this is Haunted Doll Month. So let us know if you have any stories about haunted dolls, if you see a haunted doll, or um, if you just want to talk about haunted dolls. We're really busy this month now. I mean, there's a lot of them. Do we know of any gay haunted dolls who work in the government on UFOs? Oh, man. An interview would the first, really The first thing out. I would have said was Robert. Because he's all about his outfit. Yes, that, um, that drip. He had that very close relationship with Eugene. Mm-hmm. So it seems like maybe, but then he definitely doesn't work in the government. He is in a government <laughs> museum, a government-run museum. I think it's government-run. I don't know. It's a Florida museum. Oh, this is looking worse and worse. <laughs> There's no aliens <laughs> attached to it. But I don't right. know. We're on the lookout. Um Listeners, send us your haunted doll stories. You know what to do. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. We sure will. And this is very exciting, Carrie. We, listeners, we're not just a podcast anymore. We're kind of a podcast network. Can kind we, of. Can we say that? A little. Uh, we, long Boy Media. Uh, that's... That's this. That's just us right now. Just ain't it scary with John <laughs> Technically, and our dog Poe as well. Production of Long Boy Media. You hear that at the end. You'll hear that in a minute. Um, Long Boy Media is expanding to add uh, two more podcasts in the next several weeks. Um, the second one, we'll have the details for you very soon on Love Affairs, hosted by my beautiful wife, which I'm very excited about. I'm not privy to the details on it yet. <laughs> Seems uh, self-explanatory. But coming very soon, coming next week... Yeah, the Wednesday the 9th of June. We have Unloaded Questions, featuring our dear friends Nick and Tara Salisi. That's right, it's another podcast uh, by a married couple. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be weirdly our niche right now. We've been living in a quarantined world, Caroline. This is who we're around to <laughs> podcast with. Yeah, Nick and Tara are some of my oldest and dearest friends. They've uh, been part of my life since I was, gosh, I don't know, 14 or so. Uh, won't tell you what I am now, but... All right, Grandma. <laughs> Claire. Uh, but they're uh, doing a podcast. They've always been known for their little hypothetical 
uh, arguments or, you know, fun little debates that they always do. There's no one you'd rather play Would You Rather with than Nick and Tara. It's almost a way of life. A hundred percent. And it always turns into that. And this is kind of what the the show is um, now, whereas we try to make our show kind of feel like hanging out with friends and talking about morbid stuff. There's and I will speak to this is truly like hanging out with them. And they're some of the best people that I know. So it's a fun show. It's it's laughs and uh, very entertaining. You'll be supporting us because, uh, well, we're producing and I'm editing that show. And um, by the way, it so far takes just about no editing because uh, <laughs> these are wonderfully bub- bubbly, funny, smart people who um, who I could listen to all day, frankly. Yeah, you can find them uh, coming up at any social media at Unloaded Questions. And you can also find them at our new network website, longboymedia.com. That's L-O-N-G-B-O-I media.com. That's right. Lots of exciting stuff going on there, including links to our Patreons. And um, why don't you come over there and join us on Patreon? We, uh, we want to give special thanks to those at the top of the tiers right now. That's Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, and you know I want to thank Comfy Mike and James Harrington. Thank you all, guys. We love you very much. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. This has been a production of Longboy Media. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty, and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts.